This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button question stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christian, Christian Evidences and Worldview Radio Program. Hello, Ken. And I hope Kirk Hastings is there today, too. I'm here somewhere. <laughs> okay, great. Well, today, Kirk, we're going to be talking about the reliability of Scripture. Be sure and check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number four, then the word faith.com. You can look at our bios there. You can check out the previous shows we've had. And if you do podcasting through iTunes, you can find us there. Also, we have reinvigorated the Facebook page thanks to Kirk's efforts. So we're back on Facebook if you'd like to like us, there's a fan page there so you can keep up on all things Evidence for Faith-wise. Also, be sure and check out the Ratio Christi website at ratiochristi.org, which is a ministry to college campuses. Well, Kirk, I've got a great quote here that I found as I was reading the Travels of Marco Polo. And so this is written in the 1200s. And I thought it was really interesting because it refers to what we've talked about in the past, how the idea of what is Christian faith has changed over time. And as you know, we've said that faith is not blind, at least Christian faith is not blind. And this idea of a blind faith only came into the consciousness of Christianity since the Enlightenment period when atheists began to attack Christianity, and they claimed that Christian faith was blind, and many Christians kind of adopted that way of thinking. So here's an example of what people thought about the Christian faith back from the 1200s, and here's from, again, the writings of Marco Polo, and he's talking about his father and his uncle who went on a previous trip to China, and talked to Kublai Khan, who was the emperor at that time, about Christianity. So he says that, and above all, he questioned them, meaning the emperor questioned his father and uncle, particularly, particularly respecting the pope, the affairs of the church, and the religious worship and doctrine of the Christians. Okay, so here are these two guys. Now, remember, these two guys are not monks. They're not leaders in the church. They were two merchants who had gone to China to looking for new trade routes and items to trade uh, back in Venice. So here are these guys, and they're just explaining to the emperor about Christianity. Then the emperor decides to send a letter to Rome, to the pope, to ask for missionaries to be sent to him. And he says, about the reason he says, it says, his object, he told them, was to make a request to his holiness that he would send to him a hundred men of learning, 
thoroughly acquainted with the principles of the Christian religion, as well as with the seven arts. And then he lists seven arts that were taught in the early universities. And remember, we've also on past shows talked about how Christianity began the university system. So what did they learn in those university systems? They learned rhetoric, logic, grammar, arithmetic, astronomy, music, and geometry. So he says, he continues on with this letter from Kublai Khan, and qualified to prove, okay, there's that word prove, to the learned of his dominion by just and fair argument that the faith professed by Christians is superior to and founded upon more evident truth than any other, that the gods of the Tartars and the, which is what they called themselves, and the idols worshipped in their houses were only evil spirits, and that they and the people of the East in general were under an error in reverencing them as divinities. Isn't that amazing? So here are these two guys, just merchants, explaining to the emperor of China about Christianity, and what do they talk about? They talk about evidence and logic, right? Uh Just kinds of things that we're saying that that is the way Christianity always considered faith. And it was not until the Enlightenment period that this concept of blind faith began to be accepted. Hmm. So a little quote from Marco Polo. And obviously, uh, judging from all the stuff that we get from China today, we finally found that trade route, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. I'm about a third of the way through the travels of Marco Polo, and it's, it's really interesting. Very Does exciting. Does it have anything in there about the game that you play when you're in a swimming pool? Yes, there is. Really? No, <laughs> no but I remember that game quite well. <laughs> all right, we have a news item also. I was at a conference in Philadelphia and got to hear from Richard V. Sternberg. He is a scientist, uh, two PhDs, one in microevolution, and he was the former editor for a, a journal and working for the Smithsonian, a scientific journal, and he was the one that was harassed and finally fired because he allowed a peer-reviewed article to be printed in that journal. I remember that. Yeah. So he was hammered so much that he actually began to look into intelligent design more and now is an intelligent design proponent. Wow. And he goes around talking about evolution and what we have now learned. And this was a talk on called Why We Are Not Chimps, but... (laughs) I just wanted to point out, rather than get too much into the difference about humans and chimps, I just thought his description of the way genetic information is stored is really newsworthy. It's so new, you just don't hear this talked about. Although I should say that I am reading a a book on evolution now by a secular evolutionist, and it is confirming all of the things that Dr. Sternberg wrote about or, or talked about in this conference. And the book I'm reading is called Evolution, A View from the 21st Century. It's by James Shapiro, who I believe is a secular evolutionist. But it's all basically the same thing. Anyways, from this talk, Dr. Sternberg said that the typical mammalian gene, the genes that are in mammals, consists of interleaved, interspersed, multi-level, and overlapping data files. Okay, so really complex organization of data files. Sounds like a computer. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is. It's it, he described it that way as very much the way data is stored on a computer only in a more complex fashion. So he said that this ordering permits a gene to be f- actually formed into circuits. Okay, they're actual arithmetic logic units that actually perform functions, uh, uh, logic functions. Hmm. So then these gene data files are further combined. Well, actually, these gene data files can be combined and read in different ways to create different proteins. Now, we've talked about this multi-encoding of genetic information in the past, and this is an incredibly refuting argument for evolution because you can't have genes. If you were to modify a gene, if the gene is being read in different ways, you destroy not only one gene, you destroy multiple genes. I'm sorry, you destroy multiple proteins that are written from that single gene. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a real refuter for the macroevolution hypotheses. But anyways, then these gene folders, these arithmetic logic units are also in turn arranged into superfolders and these superfolders or megafolders can are what we see when you look at the chromosome and you see banding light and dark areas that is an actual sorting mechanism that the dna uses to keep information stored in different sections so he described these logic circuits as being far more sophisticated than any logic circuits that we have created ourselves. So Hmm. it's like we're discovering circuit boards from an alien spacecraft, and we're seeing logic circuits that are arranged in complex ways that that we never thought of combining them before. Hmm. So it's just amazing what they're discovering in the DNA. Just incredible. Well, there you are. Richard Dawkins was right. We were created by aliens from another planet, right? Apparently they, so. They Isn't, brought their circuit boards here and took it from there. Yep. So, And one of the <laughs> things kidding, that folks. these logic circuits can also do is that they can allow for the a protein that they're making to be folded in a different way. So you've got the same protein being folded in a different way and therefore creating a completely different structure. So even though it's the same amino acid chain, it's used in multiple ways. So that's another level of complexity that is just irreducible. It can't be explained as being built up by random processes, even given natural selection. Wow. Uh, because the, the multiple ways would interfere with each other. Right. So you change one of them, it destroys the others. (laughs) So this nested hierarchy of file systems and circuits is just incredibly amazing. And and, uh, as I said, I'm reading this James Shapiro book, and it's uh, confirming all this stuff that uh, Dr. Sternberg was uh, writing about. Wow. Well, that's our news item for today. But I guess, Kirk, we'll get into the topic of the New Testament and, and the Bible really as a whole, and really why... We're going to open up, I guess, with a little bit about why God gave us his word. And there's something that I picked up from a talk from Josh McDowell that I really liked a lot. He was talking about how the Bible is like receiving letters from 
the loving heart of a father. And although, you know, my father's still alive and I have lots of loving conversations with him on a regular basis on the phone, I don't remember that he's actually written out for me letters, maybe instruction letters of, you know, how to handle different situations in life. But I do remember a great book that I read about marriage called Letters to Philip. Do you know about that book? Yes, I have a copy of that. I got that years ago, I think back in the 70s. It's been a while since I read it, but I do have it. Yeah, it was a really good book. I got it, my wife and I read it before we got married. And if you remember, it's written by a pastor. I believe he was a pastor for 20, 30 years, and he had a lot of good advice about marriage. He was married for a long time, and he used to counsel people about marriage. And so when his son Philip was getting married, he wrote a series of letters to him, giving him his best advice about marriage. And that's what I was thinking of when I was hearing Josh McDowell talk about how we should think of the Bible as being letters from your Heavenly Father's heart to you. And you can imagine how a loving father might want to write things to you about how he knows how to avoid problems, how to do things right, how to make things so that life would go easy. And if you did have a father like that, maybe somebody who, oh, let's imagine a father who was good at cars, and you know, maybe he was a mechanic for 20 or 30 years. And so he wrote to you about the best ways to take care of a car, or, or maybe you had a father who was a financial guru, and so he would write to you about ways to invest, ways to save money, and that kind of a thing. You know, you would really value that kind of advice because you'd know that it was coming from someone who loved you, from someone who cared about you, and really had your best interests at heart. Not somebody who was trying to sell you on a, a certain commodity, but somebody who was really giving you the best of what they knew. Right. And that's what we really find from the Bible. Look at, if you look at John 15, verse 11, Jesus says that he's telling people what he's telling them so that, quote, that your joy might be full. You know, God really is interested in our joy, in our happiness. He wants us to be happy. He's really written a roadmap for us so that we can avoid a lot of the world's minefields you know, a lot of the heartaches and miseries that are out there that are, people are just ready to step on if they are just going to wander through life unguided. Or today we would say he's given us a GPS. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the way to go. There's a, the verse that says, your word is a light unto my path. And then Second Timothy three sixteen through 17 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And that's one of the last letters that uh, Paul wrote, wasn't it? Yes, I believe it was. I think that was one of the prison epistles before he was executed. Right. So, Undoubtedly also talking about some of the New Testament that had been written by then. Yeah, right. So we really need to get rid of this idea that some Christians have or non-believers have that God's trying to, you know, he's just a kind of a, a heavenly killjoy, that he's trying to keep people from having fun. He's not. 
You know, he's not trying to restrict you from being happy. Every command that he gives us, every word of guidance comes out of his, his loving heart and is really intended to provide for us and to protect us from the bad things that will certainly come our way if we are just taking a, a random walk through life. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that Josh was talking about that I paid very careful attention to was the fact that we learn through relationships. And as human beings, we're not just intellect, we're also emotion, we're head and we're also heart. So think about the way that Jesus taught the disciples. He lived in close fellowship with them, had close relationship with them. He didn't just start a Sunday school and the disciples came in once a week and got their lesson and then went home. You know, right. that wasn't the way uh, or he, that didn't op- he didn't open an office that was only open from one to three on Thursdays or anything like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and God teaches us that way, and that's one of the ways that we through reading scripture that we can live in relationship with God. So listen to the kind of feedback that God gives us about how, why it's important to pay attention to his commands. This is from Deuteronomy 10 verse 13 and also 11 verses 26 through 28. He says, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you this day for your good right? It's Mm -hmm. because it's for your good. And then it continues on, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commands of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day. So, if you follow God's instructions, blessings will follow, happiness will follow, and If you don't follow, you're going to be cursed. Bad things are going to happen. It's not that God deliberately makes bad things happen to you. That's just the nature of the way things are. If you do the wrong thing, bad things happen. That's what makes them the wrong thing. So an intimate relationship with God our Father is really the only way that we can live meaningful lives of joy. We have to be intimately related with God's instructions and, and really know God. So if, if we follow God's ways, then that leads to knowing him better. Knowing him better leads to being and, and living more like him. And then being and living like him leads to joy and happiness and a avoidance of all the the problems that we can face in life. So the closer we come to living like him, then the closer we come to goodness and perfection. Hmm. So obedience brings blessing. For example, you can think specifically that uh, being honest, right? Mm -hmm. It brings blessings to us because God is true. And since God is true, that is how he made the universe. So, truth works in this universe because God made it that way. God made it that way because that is a reflection of who God is. Staying sexually pure brings blessings to us because God is holy. And treating others justly brings blessings to us because God is just. So, there's a verse, a chapter actually in Psalm. It's uh, Psalm 19 that I thought would be worth reading 
it really describes God's word and how it should relate to us as believers. So here's Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So he's talking about how God has revealed himself in nature, and now he talks about how God revealed himself in his words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Is that a great psalm? Mm-hmm. Well, God wants to protect us from a life lived without him. I think of the life lived without God, you know, full of guilt, emotional distress, shame, loneliness, all kinds of disrupted relationships. That's what God wants to, us to avoid and wants to help us avoid. And he really cares about us. He really is passionate about us. Look at uh, Exodus 34, 14. It says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, right? He's an impassioned God. He cares desperately about us, and he wants us not to fall away from him. He wants us not to go chasing the wrong path. And so he that, doesn't want us chasing other gods because he knows that there aren't any other ones. Yeah, that's right. And any other ones that we might claim are there will lead us to unhappiness. So we have this principle then that we can think about as a, a sort of a doctrine, that the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us, which teaches us how to follow his ways so that we can have a relationship with him. Now, if that's true, then it's therefore very important that we know for certain whether or not God's word has been reliably transmitted down to us. Right. Right? If God mm -hmm. is speaking these words of love to us, then it's very important that we know that they're reliable, that they've been accu accurately transmitted to us. Otherwise, we're likely to be suspicious of them, right? How can we really live our lives according to them if we're suspicious of 
where they came from, how sure. we got them, were they transmitted correctly. We need to be sure that the words we have today are the words that the original writers originally put down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I guess at this point I should remind people that if they're just tuning in, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about the reliability of the scriptures. So not only do we need to know for certain that the Bible is reliable, but we also then need to carry out and study the Bible itself and be diligent about regular Bible study. So we have this belief, this concept, this doctrine. We need to know for certain that it's true, and then we need to put it into effect, right, and let it change our lives through studying the Bible and and developing our relationship with God. And you know, Kirk, there have been lots of studies that have compared Christians to non-Christians, and sometimes these studies will show very little difference. And when you look into the nature of those studies, usually it's they determined who was a Christian or a non-Christian just by self-acclamation, you know, do the, does the person say they are a Christian or not? And other studies have looked a little more in depth at what does, even if the person says they're a Christian, what about them is different as a Christian? And they've looked at things like church attendance and how often they would pray and how often they would study the Bible. And you know that the thing that makes Christians the most different from non-Christians, that is, that uh, less likely to commit a crime, uh, less likely to get divorced, less likely to be juvenile delinquency is one of the studies that I've seen. You know, all these different markers that you might do in a study. The the most important thing, do you know that? Do you know whether it's uh, attendance in church or, or prayer? The most important thing is studying the Bible. Hmm. So, if you study the Bible and one of the studies talked about more than four days per week. And you can sort of see why that is. If you're, you're studying more than four days per week, you're probably trying to study every single day, and uh, you're making it you know, more than four. You might be getting six or five. If you're studying less than four days per week, you're pro- you might be only doing it on the weekends, you know, that kind of a thing, a little less, uh, less than daily. So, so it is very important that we study Scripture on a regular basis, and that's what transforms our lives. But today we're going to try and shore up this idea of knowing for certain that the Bible has been translated or transmitted correctly. And we're going to focus on the New Testament. So what do we know about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament tells us about who Jesus is, right? right. It tells us why he came and why all that matters. And I guess most importantly, it claims to be an authority over us, right? It claims to be God's word. And like we said, you know, it has, it's that path, it's that light to our path. So it's fair then that we ask where it came from, okay? So that's what we're going to take a look at today. Where did the Bible come from? And we're going to start from the oldest verses in the Bible. We're going to start from actual quotations that are found within the Bible, within the New Testament. So, whether it's Romans or Second Timothy or whatever, 
whenever those books were written, what we're looking at is things that scholars have found called creeds or creedal content. And it's where the New Testament writer has quoted from the earliest creeds of the Christian faith. So this is a real exciting area of study. And people who've been listening to the show might remember our discussion of 1 Corinthians 15. This has become a real popular creedal statement to look at. But there's actually lots of other ones. So I thought what we'd do is just list out for people some of the creedal content that's in the New Testament. So we've got 1 John 4, verse 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, and Luke chapter 24, verse 34. Now, if you take all of those creeds and you just kind of list them out, what is it that the early Christians taught each other were the important doctrines of the early church? So remember, these are quotations that the writers of the Gospels are referring to, previous statements. So here's a list of the creedal statements. Number one, Jesus is the only way. So that was an absolutely very early teaching of the church, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Unfortunately, we see this being eliminated today. People like Rob Bell wrote a book that says that there are lots of people that are going to be in heaven even though they didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, Even the Roman Catholic Church in, what was it, 1962, I believe, came out with statements that, that claimed that if you're you can be a Muslim or uh, Jewish. You don't have to be a Christian, and you'll still go to heaven. But this doctrine of Jesus being the only way goes all the way back to prior to the earliest books of the New Testament. Another thing is that we have to confess with our mouths and our hearts. That was a creedal statement, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Again, an early creedal statement that Jesus was fully man and fully God, that Jesus was betrayed, that Jesus offered his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, that he offered himself in obedience to pay for our sins, that he rose from the dead for our justification, that he appeared to Peter and others, that he ascended. The ascension uh, is an early creedal statement, that he gives life to all things, that he is the deity who created everything. So, uh, really, those are the earliest things that we know about the early church because they're quoted in the New Testament. Now, we want to look specifically at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, because it's uh, such a significant creedal statement. It's quoted by Paul, and Paul is saying, this is what I learned when I became a Christian. So, here's what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 says. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Now, the way they know this is a creed is because this is actually a creedal formulation from Hebrew that's written in Greek. And this was discovered by a secular New Testament scholar who discovered this creedal statement in here. So, this wasn't even found by Christian scholars. 
so he goes on, what is it that he received when he first became a Christian? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, rose from the dead, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, let me just make a parenthetical note here about the significance of the fact that he said Cephas here. This is the name that Jesus gave to Simon. Si- who The person we know as Simon Peter was originally called Simon, and then Jesus gave him the name Cephas, which means rock. It's Aramaic, and it means rock. Well, as the New Testament, or as the Gospels would have been spread further and further out into the Greek community, they had to speak Greek with people, and so the Greek word is Peter. And so later, Simon came to be called Peter. And you see when the Gospels were written in the 50s and 60s, and we'll get to that later also, you see the use of the word Peter. But early on, the very earliest, everything was spoken in Aramaic, and this particular creed that Paul received when he became a Christian about two years after the resurrection was given to him in Aramaic. So it says that Jesus first appeared to Cephas. Isn't that an incredible evidence for the early and the reliability of this creed? Yeah, it's amazing the way these... um scholars can pick apart old documents like that, and just from the language and the way things are written, they can determine basically when it was written because of the style of it. Yeah, that's right. And then once it's explained to you, then you can see it. Right. You know, you can see it that this is is obviously what Paul was taught to believe. Right. Uh, So it says, so it continues on, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last. And then he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So that's that, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, uh, one of the earliest creeds that we find. So it says that First of all, I mean, we get we. It, it's very clear Jesus existed, right? I mean, that's you know, you sometimes hear the silly argument of the atheists who claim that Jesus didn't exist, that he died, that Jesus was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he appeared to his followers in a glorified state, and it also shows us that the Old Testament is the way to understand Jesus. Okay, so because it says according to the scriptures. So it was early on that the Christians realized that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies. Right, because the New Testament wasn't put together yet. That's right. And this was all within one to three years of the death of Jesus. So there's absolutely no chance that there is simply not time enough for any kind of legendary development that the critics will often say. Right. There was no time for legends or myths to grow around this guy. That's right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking about the reliability of the New Testament documents. All right, Kirk, so let's look at some of the—we've looked at the creedal statements within the earliest books of the New Testament, but let's look at the— now, some of the earliest books. The scholars all agree that the writings of Paul are the earliest books. So, 
how do we know when they were written? When were the writings of Paul written? Okay, well, obviously, they can't be dated later than Paul's death, which we uh, know occurred A.D. 64-65, that, that time frame, mm-hmm. probably uh, A.D. 64. There's also a very important, uh, what's called a date anchor that occurs in the book of Acts. It mentions that Gallio was proconsul of Achaia when the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. Now, this occurs in Acts chapter 18, verse 12. Well, we have archaeological evidence. We have an inscription that dates Gallio to A.D. 51-52 time frame. So now that means that we can work backward and figure out exactly when certain things happened in uh, Paul's life. So we have the Jerusalem Council then happening in A.D. 48. We have Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, A.D. 50, or 45 to 47, and then that means that we get back to the conversion of Paul somewhere around A.D. 31 to 33. So, essentially, immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. Probably, probably no more than two years later. Right. And so, we should mention, too, that, uh, as I understand it, Achaia, Achaia is uh, in Greece, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. Yes. And so, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't catch the meaning of that. Well, I just wanted to, for our audience, you're saying that Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. I just wanted the oh, audience okay. to know where Achaia is. Oh, okay. All right, gotcha. It's in Greece. There you go. So, um, so, so now, so we are very confident that the writings of Paul are during the 40s, 50s, and, and maybe the very earliest, the, the prison, final prison um, epistles were written in the early 60s. Now, this is not the 1950s or 60s. We're talking about the original 50s and 60s. <laughs> That's right. First century. Right. First century. All right. Well, then, what? So then, so that's the writings of Paul. What about the Gospels? Okay. When was, let's take Matthew, the first Gospel. And, and it was, it's in the order, by the way, of the way it was believed to be written Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is the way that. The early church fathers believed that the Gospels were written. They were in chronological order, in other words. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Now, um, many scholars, many modern scholars will date Matthew to the time frame A.D. 70 to uh, 100. But there's actually early and unanimous uh, tradition that Matthew was the first Gospel written. And in fact, it, it's even revealed in this uh, chronological or- ordering of uh, the Gospels themselves. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things that we know about the book of Matthew is that it mentions existing landmarks in Jerusalem as if they're still standing. So, uh, that's evidence then that uh, Matthew was writing before 70 AD, because otherwise, why would he talk about things that are, are destroyed now? And why would he talk about them as if they're still standing? He might talk about them in the past tense, but it seems odd that he would talk about them uh, if they'd been destroyed. Right. What we're talking about is the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70 because they had been giving them trouble for quite a while. And they finally right. went in in A.D. 70 and said, that's it, and they leveled the city. 
mm-hmm. and the temple, destroyed the temple in AD 70. Right. So if Matthew is talking about landmarks in Jerusalem as if they still exist while he was writing the gospel, then you would have to date the gospel before AD 70. Now, one thing that the scholars will point out is that the book of Matthew that we have looks like Matthew relied on Mark because there are a lot of verses from or, or in Mark that are the same as in Matthew, and it looks like um, Matthew used Mark as a kind of chronological guide and right. uh, developed. So that would mean that Matthew is after Mark, but yet we have this... Uh, tradition that says that Matthew wrote first. Well, one of the traditions says that Matthew wrote in his native language. So we assume either Hebrew or Aramaic. So it's possible that there was an early, an earlier version of Matthew written in Hebrew. So it's possible that Matthew did write the first gospel in Aramaic or Hebrew, and then after Mark wrote his gospel, um, Matthew decided to write the book of Matthew that we now have in Greek and used Mark. So, so the, the first version of Matthew then may have been uh, just uh, much smaller, maybe just a list of all of the sayings that he remembered that Jesus had said. Right. Um, and there's speculation that, that Matthew may actually be the source that some scholars call Q, which uh, is believed to be used by both Matthew and by Luke. And it's just similar verses, so they call it Q, it's for the German word for source, since they don't, they don't know who, uh, where those verses came from. Now, Q is supposed to be just like a listing of the things that Jesus said, not really a biography or a story, right? Yeah, I believe so. You know, I've looked for a published version of Q. You know, I don't see why uh, people wouldn't do that, wouldn't just, you know, okay, here are all the verses that we think are Q verses. But so far, I haven't been able to find something like that. Maybe one of our listeners might know if such a thing exists. That'd be great. I'd love to see. Uh, it's. Uh, I believe it may be a list of sayings, but it's also, it might have some historical, uh, chronological information. But it does, just reading Matthew and Mark, does seem that Matthew does depend on Mark uh, and seems to expound on Mark. So whereas Mark has got much simpler verses, Matthew elaborates on that same verse. Right. So what about Mark then? When was Mark written? Well, we know that Luke, uh, it, it's, it seems that Luke used Mark uh, also. So, and we've got uh, Luke, for reasons that we'll explain in a minute, uh, written around A.D. 60-62. We also know that tradition says that Peter approved of Mark's gospel, so we have to, that has to be before uh, Peter was killed, and the martyrdom of Peter was also at the same time as Paul's around A.D. 64-65. So Mark uh, is certainly earlier than the 60s, so maybe in the 50s, and there's some uh, recent indication now, we have to wait for other scholars to confirm the work of a scholar who apparently is uh, showing that Mark may have been written in the 40s from for reasons of style, style reasons where he talks about the temple and the law uh, written in a way that a person from the in the 40s would have written and that this uh, attitude toward the, uh, the temple uh, changed from 40s to 50s. So, 
So we wait for that. But it, but at least that's uh, certainly it should should be before the 60s. Okay, then what about Luke? All right. Well, it's obvious that Luke and Acts are a two-volume set. You see that from the ending of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts. So right. we look at Acts then, and we see that Acts ends with Paul in prison. And Luke doesn't record martyrdom of Paul, again, AD 64, 65. There's no mention of the execution. Seems very unlikely, uh, since he's writing a chronological history of Paul's uh, missionary journeys, that he would leave out such a fact. So if Acts was written before that, before 64, then Luke obviously also written before that. So we've got Luke written sometime early 60s. Well, then what about the book of John, the last of the four Gospels? Well, we have from tradition, we have Clement of Alexandria, who writes that John wrote last. We've got Again, a similar fact with Matthew that John mentions existing landmarks in Jerusalem that were later destroyed, and the destruction of Jerusalem happening around A.D. 70. But also, a significant thing is that there's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem, even though it was predicted by Jesus. So think about it. If, if John is writing, some, some scholars will say maybe as late as 90s, so he's writing in uh, the 90s, 20 years after the destruction of, Jesus, of Jerusalem, and by that time, you've already, you, you're already thinking of all those landmarks, those places that you used to know in Jerusalem as gone. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to write a book as talking about those landmarks as if they still exist. And secondly, why wouldn't you mention that Jesus predicted exactly how the city was going to be conquered? Right. And it's not just in John that there that is written this prediction, but also I believe it's in Matthew that Jesus predicts exactly how the city is going to be destroyed. Certainly that would have been uh, something they would have wanted to talk about if they knew about it. So it seems very, very likely that the uh, book of John was written before AD 70, so in the 60s likely. Right. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. We're a ministry of Ratio Christi. If you would like Kirk or I, I guess it should be Kirk or me, I think would be the grammatical way to say that, <laughs> to come speak at your church, then just email us. And you can email any of your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And also, we'd like Facebook you to page. include the call letters of the station that you listen to us on. So please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!